0: to another episode of the breakdown oh what a week in health it's been we set up the interview that we are about to have uh a few days ago thinking that we were going to talk about one thing and then in the the space of of those few days we're now talking about much more than than one thing the real impetus for this interview before we we got derailed with healthcare being lit on fire was uh because we wanted to talk about the changes that have been made to the chief medical officer of health and in order to do that we reached out to somebody who's been on the show uh before and has been very Extraordinarily, some might say, patient with us. So we're very excited to welcome back to the show Dr. Laurian Hardcastle. She's an assistant professor in the Faculty of Law at the University of Calgary with a joint appointment to the Department of Community Health Sciences in the coming School of Medicine. And then there's more paragraphs here that are very impressive. So we'll just say Dr. Lorian Hardcastle's awesome. And it's a thrill to have you back on the show, Dr. Hardcastle.
1: Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here.
0: Uh I'm so like for a little bit of context for our our listeners and our viewers uh i sent a very panicked message earlier today being like hey so i know that or i was i think it might have even been last night hey so i know that we're scheduled to do this thing uh can we bump it by like 12 hours because apparently the universe is going to collapse and we're going to talk about that in just a bit but first we're going to talk about the cmh so help me god (laughs) so uh dr hardcastle to start with Do you feel like there was undue legal confusion in regards to who was supposed to manage a, I don't know, uh, perhaps a minor pandemic once a public health emergency was was created? Do you think that there was legal confusion out there?
1: I think there was, and it was unnecessary. The Public Health Act has and is uh, oh, has always been crystal clear that the chief medical officer of health is the one who issues public health orders, either in the day-to-day uh, kind of situation or in a public health emergency. Section 29 of the Public Health Act said that, uh, despite that, what was happening during COVID, as we later found out, was that somehow Dr. Hinshaw came to believe that she was merely an advisor and the government was treating her as merely an advisor, Um, Although when it was convenient for them, sometimes they would say, well, these are her decisions. Um, And and so the legislation wasn't matching up with reality because she was the decision maker in the legislation. But cabinet was dictating the terms of her public health orders to her.
0: So, I mean, I I, maybe I need to rephrase my question a little bit, because there's no doubt, I think, that there was um, some. I'll use the word illegal things that happened in regards to the public health orders. I feel like I'm I'm safe to say that cuz I'm pretty sure a judge did. But it it seems like there's there's sort of two sides to the the equation if you will. On one side we have all of the legislation that you listed off there and on the other hand we have um Mr. Kenny and co saying, "Hey, how about if we just made all of the decisions and Dr. Henshaw uh some might say inexplicably saying oh yeah i'm just in an advisory role was that do you think there was a flaw in the legislation was there a flaw in how her role was communicated to her
1: it, it isn't clear how all of the the misunderstanding came to be i, I think the legislation is clear to anyone plus you would hope that the chief medical officer of health who's writing public health orders has legal advice. And so it's not clear how she came to believe that she was merely an advisor. Um, With respect to the government, they too obviously had had access to legal advice and they must have known what the legislation said. Um, and, And also the government had opportunities where it amended the public health act during COVID and could have, brought the legislation in line with reality and they wouldn't have been out of line in doing so. There are provincial models where cabinet does have more decision-making authority in a public health emergency. So they wouldn't have even been an outlier, but it seems as though they wanted a situation where they could have their cake and eat it too. When things were going well, they could be at the podium telling everyone how great they had done and how they had balanced lives and livelihoods. But when things were going poorly, they could say, well, you know, these were these were Dr. Henshaw's ideas. We followed her her recommendations. And that's what they said when Open for Summer turned out to be a big flop in the fall.
0: And this is where, like, as this whole thing is kind of unfolded, I found myself to be quite confused because in the early days of the pandemic, we had you on the show. We had Dr. Obako Bogu uh, on the show as well. And, and both of you were very clear. Oh, no, this is hers. Like there was there was no, oh, gosh, if only there was some sort of legal clarity here. It was this is hers. And it seemed like the confusion that most people were experiencing who who understood or had been told by people smarter than them uh, what the legal framework was. The confusion was more. why, Why are they doing it this way? This isn't how it's supposed to work. Am I am. Am I like having a Mandela yeah. no, moment? That's, that's
1: absolutely fair. What what there was, was there was just a complete misalignment between the law and, and what was happening in reality. And it's not clear why the government didn't resolve that. And so I don't blame the public for being confused and wondering who the decision maker was, because you know you had Dr. Henshaw who wasn't accurately representing the legislation. You had the government who who seemed to be waffling on what their role was, um, and all of it was unnecessary. They could have amended the legislation to begin with if they wanted to be the decision makers. Um, cabinet could have made themselves the decision makers, and and indeed that's that's what we're seeing this week is new legislation that would shift power to cabinet in a public health emergency.
0: Yeah. And we're going to get to that in just a sec. I just really wanted to go through it because to me, it was kind of like if somebody walked into a convenience store and took a handful of like Snickers bars and then walked out and the cop said, Oh, you're not allowed to do that. And the person with the handful said, Oh, I thought the clerk said I could. And then the clerk said, no, no, I didn't say that, but you took them. And then there was confusion over, not whether or not the law was broken, but who broke it, and it seems like that's kind of what happened in regards to the 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 health uh, protections and the health orders that were issued. It's not a question of whether or not the the health orders should have happened. It's more a question of how they happened. Am I am I representing that okay?
1: Yeah, yeah. So so what ended up happening was there there were two cases, one by parents who were concerned that masks had been uh, rescinded in schools, and then a group with the opposite view of public health orders, a group who felt that the public health orders were unconstitutional. And in both of those cases... Um, the court didn't seem concerned with the substance of public health orders. And indeed, in the, the charter case, the court said, no, these these public health orders were, were necessary. Hospitals were struggling. Um, so it's not that the court didn't support the, the public health orders themselves, but they said they were the product of improper delegation, that, that these public health orders weren't valid because Dr. Henshaw had had delegated her authority to to cabinet and so what ended up happening was uh there were a bunch of of cases where charges were dismissed um or or there were acquittals because the public health orders that people had been charged under were invalidly enacted not that their substance was wrong or problematic but that the government hadn't followed the proper process in enacting those public health orders
0: now to be clear because i've seen a lot of chatter on social media and god knows there's the the folks who inevitably have some form of cryptocurrency in their bio who talk about ah oh, see the health orders they were all illegal and to, to paraphrase what you just said there, it's not that the health orders were illegal. It's the manner in which they were implemented was not how it's supposed to happen. So the at, to my knowledge, at least, there hasn't been a court ruling saying, oh, no, these these orders were invalid because they breached the charter or these orders were invalid because of bad science. The, the verdicts that have been rendered have been verdicts saying these orders are invalid because that's not how this is supposed to happen. It's not that the outcome was bad. It was the process was bad.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that some of these uh, cases have been misrepresented where, um, in, in the one case, Ingram, the court said that the public health orders are consistent with the charter. There was just this procedural issue. But following that decision, you're right, on Twitter, there were people sort of talking about it being a, a victory for freedom and the rights were vindicated. And that's not what happened. Um, they lost on, on the charter issue. Uh, it was simply the fact that the public health orders were improperly delegated.
0: Okay. So it seems to me, and I'm not going to ask you to say this because that wouldn't be fair, but I'm going to say it. It seems to me that the problem that exists with the way that the public health orders were developed was that Dr. Henshaw did not hold her role in the way that the legislation said she was supposed to. And politicians and i feel like it's safe to say we're not just talking about mr kenny we're talking about cabinet given that there were presentations that were given to all of cabinet and cabinet didn't say oh we shouldn't be reaching in and and doing this this is supposed to be the reign the the purview of, of the public health experts so government certainly overreached and Henshaw didn't smack their hands back
1: yeah it it is not clear how this happened i mean as as someone in the position that she was dr hinshaw should have had advice access to legal advice cabinet should have had access to legal advice and indeed there are members of cabinet who are lawyers so it isn't clear how uh, anyone at the table didn't realize that this was this this was the situation and so it isn't clear if they just chose to ignore it or whether they were planning on making legislative changes post COVID. It isn't clear why they allowed this this situation to persist or, or perhaps they thought nothing would come of it. Um, but but it's frustrating. It's frustrating. Uh, you know, to those of us who who were saying that this isn't what the legislation says, it was frustrating to see public health order after public health order that had these these legal issues, be it you know the issues with with improper delegation or some of the issues around the public health orders not being made available in a timely manner, or some of them were poorly drafted, they were lacking definitions or, or had other drafting issues. They were just a, a frustrating mess, despite all of the, the access to legal advice that the individuals behind them ought to have had.
0: Do you think it's safe to say, and this is purely a hypothetical, so we're just gonna speculate a little bit, do you think it's safe to say that if 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 maybe Cabinet and Dr. Henshaw had listened to the, the episodes that we did, they might have saved themselves a whole bunch of trouble? <laughs>
1: Well, I, I mean, there were the there were the episodes you did. There were other podcasts. There were op eds sure. that someone in the government had to see. There were Twitter threads in which some of the government's own policy advisors engaged. I, I don't know how they couldn't have known this.
0: Yeah, um, I I don't don't disagree with you, but I wanted to make sure that we really fleshed that out, because the the takeaway for me as a non lawyer, non legal expert uh, I mean, there's a lot of people who say that my my biggest credential is hack podcaster. I lean into that. Uh, but the biggest takeaway is it wasn't a problem with the laws. It was a problem with the people following the laws.
1: Yeah, absolutely. The, the, the law itself, which put uh, decision-making power in the hands of a, of a scientist, many people would say that that makes perfect sense during a pandemic, that having someone who is insulated from political pressure and who has the scientific background that that's who you want to make decisions of course other people have a different view which is that you know these decisions aren't only medical in nature but have political economic social dimensions and so that they should be in the hands of elected officials so so there are people with with both with both views and you could draft legislation that reflects either view we just happen to have legislation in place that situated the power in the hands of the Chief Medical officer of health,
0: okay, which brings us to a new bill, and this is Bill six. Um, what was your i'm gonna i'm gonna I'm gonna not pontificate too much just yet, but what was your I mean, we knew that something was coming. What was your reaction on your first reading of Bill six?
1: I wasn't surprised. Uh, I think that it was it was clear to me that the government wanted a situation where the day-to-day public health decisions would continue to be made by the chief medical officer of health and the other medical officers of health, whereas in an emergency, um, you know, where there are the the broader orders around masking or business closures or those sorts of things, that cabinet would want those in their hands. And so the, the way that the legislation was drafted, I think, reflects that.
0: What do you make of the like, I guess I have so much dissonance with this bill and the justification for it. I'm going to try to work through some of that with you. I have a feeling I'm not going to resolve very much of it just because I have a fundamental problem with the logic behind it. But what do you think of the argument or the logic that, hey, you know what, if it's a small scale thing, if it's one individual, if it's one location, then science is awesome and we should listen to it. But if it's a bigger situation with larger cap- potential loss of life, then we should leave it in the hands of the people who don't have any medical or scientific or ideological or any of those things background.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's it's a huge problem that in a public health emergency, if one were to happen following the passage of this bill, that The decisions would be in the hands of cabinet and the government didn't do isn't doing anything in the legislation that would counterbalance that. And so I would have liked to have seen a bill where if cabinet is to be the decision maker, then the chief medical officer of health is made more independent. And so at the very least, we would get access to their recommendations and their advice. um, And there are models for that and so the, for me that would have been a better balance that if cabinet is going to decide we still get to see what those recommendations were so that people can can make decisions for themselves and their families accordingly
0: okay so all of that being said then um i mean it seems like your inclination would be that in scientific problems there should be the 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 balance of the decision-making should be held by people who understand the nature of those scientific problems. What do you make of, I mean, one of the arguments that we've seen, the the folks who have introduced this legislation, one of the arguments that they've introduced has been, well, we had to do this because there was so much confusion and we had to resolve the Ingram issue. Mm -hmm. And that, Unless I'm missing something that seems to me to be a little bit of a I'll go with disingenuous argument because yeah. the 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 Ingram decision was you didn't follow the rules. You should follow the rules. And it seems like to me, at least what Bill six is, is the the government saying, oh, but we don't like those rules. We're We're just going to write the rules that we would like. And that's what we're doing. Am I reading it wrong? <laughs>
1: no no ingram could have been resolved in two ways one ingram could have been resolved by the government leaving in place the existing legislation and merely following it um you know in some ways that would have been the easiest solution or the government could have amended the legislation and and they had a variety of models open to them that, that i think might have been preferable so for example um there's at least one province that has a model where the chief medical officer of health makes orders and then they get approved by the minister. Um, and so it, the the orders are still being driven by the chief medical officer of health, but they're getting that government sign off um, to say, you know, yes, or or we identify these, these problems. Um, or, you know, they could have adopted a model where cabinet is the decision maker, but the orders, the recommendations that led to cabinet's decision become public. And so then, if cabinet doesn't adopt those recommendations, then all of us can hold their feet to the fire for failing to do so. But this current model has not only cabinet as the decision maker, but the chief medical officer of health doesn't have independence to do that. They report to the minister; they're basically a bureaucrat serving the minister, um, as opposed to having that that kind of independent role where we would actually get to know what was what was happening and what their true recommendations are.
0: Is there anything in Bill six? Because it seems to me and I have a couple more questions on this topic before we move on. But it seems to me if you're going to say, hey, you know what, if it's a small thing, if it's if it's just a couple of, I don't know, preschools uh, and a kitchen, then the cmoh can totally they can they can run that show even though my understanding is there's local levels of chief medical officer of health who could do that without the provincial one having to get involved um but to say if you're going to make the the jump from but if it's a big deal then we're going to leave that in the hands of the politicians who live and die on a four-year cycle um one would think that there would be something in the legislation that would say and the chief medical officers of health recommendations must be publicly available. Is there anything in the bill that covers off that in better words?
1: No, no. It it what happens now is uh, is that the chief medical officer of health would report uh, recommendations to to cabinet, and the chief medical officer of health has has asserted in the past that those communications are all confidential, um, and then under the new legislation, what would happen is cabinet would then make the decision. So we wouldn't see the recommendations. We wouldn't know the rationale behind cabinet's decisions. We would just get a public health order saying, here's what's happening. Or or perhaps more likely in Alberta, we would get no public health order. And we would all be left wondering, should we wear masks? Should we stay home? What should we do? No one's telling us. Uh, you know, the government can't even be bothered to encourage people to get vaccinated. So, uh, you know, in Alberta, we would all be sort of just left uh, floating in the breeze, not knowing not knowing what we should do and and that's a sad state of affairs when not only is the government willing to act, but people can't act on their own behalf because they're they're not getting that that information about what a chief medical officer of health would recommend you to do um, so it's It's a difficult situation, and it takes what was already a very politicized issue in Alberta and makes it more political. Um, this that's what this legislation does is it is it explicitly says that public health emergency decisions are now political decisions
0: yeah for me the the thing that i keep bumping on is the notion that anybody who's in elected office is somehow qualified to make these decisions because if you were going to make the argument that a lay person um can make these decisions for themselves then you wouldn't need a chief medical officer of health at all um But we do because most people aren't experts in epidemiology or virology or public health or 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 or. And so there's it's it's just stunning to me that we're willing to say, like, hey, you know what? The politician who who may be and I'm not denigrating uh, anybody who's been a mechanic or a a farmer or whatever, um, they should be the ones making these incredibly complex decisions by nature only of the fact that they were elected and have a public opinion gun to their head.
1: Yeah. It's, it's these things like a pub like a pandemic are so, so specialized and the information was flowing so quickly. The science was complex that we shouldn't expect individuals to to have to try and understand this. And we shouldn't expect cabinet to, to be able to understand these issues in the same way that, a chief medical officer of health whose entire job is public health would understand these issues. Um, and so this really minimizes that that person to merely an advisory role and maybe cabinet would listen to them. Maybe they wouldn't, uh, but none of us will will ever know.
0: I'm curious, you mentioned other models. Are there any other provinces in Canada or territories in Canada who have purely the, the the government will be advised in secret and then the government will make all of the decisions and cross your fingers suck as model.
1: There there are there are a range of models with respect to the chief medical officer of health's authority. So there are models like ours at the one end of the spectrum, and then there are models at the other end of the spectrum where cabinet is the one making the decisions in a pandemic. So either through regulation or through ministerial orders um, and some of those jurisdictions that have more power in the hands of cabinet did perform well during COVID. Um, you know, for example, most of the, the maritime provinces were, were regarded as well performing during COVID. And uh, some of them have a model that, that is more cabinet heavy than, than our model, our current model is. Um, and so, you know, it, on the one hand, um, we might say that it's problematic for for cabinet to be to be the decision maker, but but on the other hand, I think it's actually wh- who's the cabinet, who's who's the, the the decision maker? Because I think some of these powers are are fine in one person's hands, but but in another person's hands, they can be quite problematic. Um, and so, in some provinces where cabinet was the decision maker, cabinet chose to take. A very cautious approach, uh, an approach that, that would try and minimize COVID cases as much as possible, protect hospital capacity, and that's what Cabinet wanted to do. And they leaned heavily on the science and heavily on their chief medical officers of health. But I think in Alberta 2023, those have powers in the hands of our Cabinet we wouldn't see any of that. We we would see um, very little in the way of public health, um, even under the the previous government under Premier Kenny. You know, we were often one of the last provinces to put restrictions in place, or the first to pull them back. Um, and we had embarrassing hospital capacity problems after their their failed open for summer. I mean, we were talking about rationing and sending people out of the province which is embarrassing in a province with the the health resources that ours has
0: Yeah, if i remember right we actually needed the military for a bit of time there so
1: yeah absolutely no. that, that whole situation was was just just absurd that uh, ahs was being sort of pushed to find beds find beds find beds and the government was doing uh comparatively little on their end to prevent those beds from being needed in the first place
0: yeah. Um I guess at the if I was to find a silver lining on this this is a this situation is a presents a compelling argument to elect the the best qualified most reasonable candidate regardless of of party lines perhaps.
1: Yes, uh certainly some candidates show themselves to be more receptive to Uh, experts and and to listen to experts and those kinds of people you could expect might behave reasonably in a public health emergency and would lean heavily on a chief medical officer of health's advice and would probably follow that advice and it would probably be fine. On the other hand, um, you know, we've seen candidates that are uh, heavy on the ideology uh, or who are perhaps in a more of a contested area and their constituents are, are saying, you know, we don't want these public health restrictions and those people I think would be beholden to their, uh, their base or to their ideologies and, and may lean away from uh, following the science.
0: Let's move on into, you know, we're having a conversation about the the type of candidate, the type of elected official and the the values that they, they bring to the table Um, and one of the, uh, pieces of legislation that a lot of people were expecting to potentially see this legislative session, but that, um, Minister of Mental Health and Addictions, Dandy Williams has said they've kicked down the, the line. Uh, Daniel Smith said they've kicked down the line, look for it in spring is the, they call it in what is probably one of the uglier branding exercises that I can imagine, compassionate intervention, everybody who works or has some knowledge of of addictions and and treatment, I have seen refers to it as forced treatment. So, boy, where do we even start with this? Were you expecting to see uh, the bill, the legislation? For forced treatment coming into play this legislative session,
1: I was actually I was I was surprised to see um, when I saw that there was an announcement related to legislation and and mental health and addictions. That's what I was expecting. Instead, we got some minor changes to the legislation allowing us to recover healthcare costs from uh, opioid manufacturers distributors. That's what we got um but when i saw the announcement i was absolutely expecting it to be about compelled treatment of individuals with addictions
0: yeah uh there's some fascinating interpretations of that uh, legal recovery act just by the name alone that were certainly floating around social media and it turned into a you know oh we're including um the one other category of people involved in the dissemination of these drugs that were involved in the lawsuit. So I'm sure there's like some legal nerd out there who's just like, oh, this is wonderful. But I think everybody else was like, oh, that's it. But let's talk about the, the, the compassionate intervention or the forced treatment. Um, are you aware of any other jurisdiction in, let's start with just Canada that does forced treatment?
1: So, under uh, provincial mental health laws, so, so not laws specific to to addiction, but laws that that deal with mental uh, health more generally, there are provinces that do allow, in certain circumstances and and with certain procedural protections in place, for individuals who are involuntary patients um, to to be treated without without their consent. Um, and it is it's not uncontroversial. Um, there have been discussions about how that may be problematic from from a charter perspective. So even that is controversial and that's existed for a number of years. Um, but expanding it to to the context of, of individuals suffering with addictions, I think you know is is uh, is is concerning, especially in in this province where they've really not, wanted to make the full spectrum of services available to individuals with addictions. Um, you know, they've wanted to disregard the, the harm reduction uh, sorts of options and instead focus on recovery-based solutions. And so I think that, you know, where you, you don't have other options available to people, you're funneling them into this recovery-based model, and then you're potentially compelling them to receive treatment. I think that's that's problematic. I think it's legally problematic, it's problematic from a policy perspective. Um, and and I don't see how it's going to, to be effective.
0: So I want to talk a little bit about the, the, the other examples where there's forced treatment. We hear uh, members of the UCP and people who are advocating for this uh, new thing, often referring to, oh, well, we already have these things. So we have the things like mental health forms, like Form 1, Form 10. But The criteria for those, certainly a a Form 10, is you have to be saying, I want to kill myself. I want to kill that guy um, because he's a lizard person. Uh, There has to be some, I'm not just angry at him. uh, There has to be some sort of psychological defect. Uh, And a lot of people look at those and go, well, you know, death's a pretty clear endpoint when the goal is I want to get to death to myself or death for someone else there's not really anywhere to go from that and' a, there's it seems like there's some people who are are delineating I'm probably one of them the difference between I would like to use drugs I would like to get high versus I want to die the there seems like there's a bit of a a difference in the the permanence of those 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 goals. Is there a legal argument for like if somebody and and you mentioned the fact that there's charter concerns for things like the the form one or the form ten or the all the other numbers in between? Um, but is there some sort of legal delineation between somebody wants to make a bad decision and somebody wants to end their life?
1: Well, it's interesting, D- despite the fact that um, these these laws exist across the country and raise obvious charter issues, even in the mental health context, um, and and have been expanded in the mental health context from from that that point that you mentioned, where you have to be a danger to your to yourself or others, to um, many provinces have expanded that to allow for involuntary hospitalization where people are at risk of of significant deterioration or or they're not quite at the point where where they're threatening to harm themselves but based on their past history it's it's projected they'll get there and so there there's been an expansion even in the criteria uh, that we use to involuntarily hospitalize people despite that there hasn't been a lot of litigation in this space and and we can imagine why you know these these pe- people in this position aren't necessarily well positioned to to mount a legal challenge there there was a legal challenge in Alberta a couple of years ago and and actually um the court found themselves deeply concerned about some of the, the things that were going on in Alberta's uh, hospitals with respect to patients with mental illnesses. Um, they were concerned about the number of people, the length of time they were hospital hospitalized for, some of the, the procedural problems they were accessing along the way. Um, and so when the courts have got their hands on this issue, sometimes they, they have been concerned. And I would expect we would see that the same thing in this space.
0: I mean, the revocation of a charter right is to my understanding a pretty big deal um that's my why they have the Oaks test I'm told um, yeah so if you could talk about that is is there a test is like yep. with with the pandemic we had the Oaks test to suspend the the charter rights because the world was toxic um is there some sort of equivalent for I don't like that guy and he's doing drugs.
1: Yes, yeah, so I think that if the government were to pass legislation that compelled individuals to receive treatment I think that violates the rights to life, liberty, security of the person. So section seven of the charter, I don't think there's, there's any any question that that raises issues around liberty and, and security of the person. The question then becomes though, um, those charter rights aren't absolute and the government has an opportunity to justify those, those charter rights. And, and you've mentioned the Oaks test. And so what the government has to show is that um, it's limited rights for a uh, reasonable, uh, pressing objective. They've done so in a way that minimally impairs individual rights and they've been proportionate in their approach. The The issue I have here is that um, the, these cases almost always center on this question of minimal impairment. Could the government have dealt with this issue in a way that impaired individual rights less? Did they have other options? Do they have evidence for what they're doing? And I think the, the answer to do they have other options? Is yes, you know this is a government that is pushing people into recovery only, um, and and is abandoning harm reduction. And they should be giving people as many options as possible, trying to meet them where they are. And you know even then, this may still not be justifiable. But in its current form, where they're not even bothering with trying to to give people options to safely consume or or those sorts of things, I think. This is very vulnerable to to a charter challenge, and then the the second piece is, you know, the courts expect the governments where they're going to limit individual rights to bring the evidence, um, and I don't know what evidence they're going to bring in this case uh, that this is that this is effective and that this is going to work and that this is we have good reason to limit individual rights. I don't think that evidence exists. The evidence that I've seen shows that this is this may do the opposite. It may Um, drive people away from seeking help. It may uh, have have the opposite effect and may actually make things worse. And the courts are going to expect that evidence from the government. And perhaps that's why they've delayed this bill uh, to next session is is to try to address some of these issues.
0: It seems like, though, what the government is doing, I mean, that's a fascinating. I love the notion that because the this government has actively worked against harm reduction. They may well be shooting themselves in the foot when it comes to this legislation, um, because honestly, my personal standpoint is any argument for harm for harm reduction is worth considering. Um, but I'm curious, like, what's the legal difference between, like, what what Daniel Smith? What the UCP are arguing, what proponents of forced treatment are arguing is, hey, if somebody is doing so much drugs that they're 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 risking ending their life, I don't think that there's anybody who uses drugs regularly who's not aware uh, of the toxic supply, who aren't aware of the the risks for a variety of extraordinarily complex reasons that I'm not in any position to judge. They continue to use. Um, some of those may w- very well be physiological because dope sick sucks um but if somebody makes that choice you know if somebody's to say absolutely i understand that it's a toxic supply because y'all won't give a safe supply and i understand that i could die but i choose to continue to use these drugs because that's my choice what's the difference between somebody saying that and somebody saying this is my life Um, i have a, a terminal condition and I'm going to avail myself of, of something like made uh, to me if somebody is able to demonstrate that they're aware of the inherent risks of their choices uh, or the 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 likely or definite outcomes of their choices in the in the instance of made um, they're allowed to make that choice are they not.
1: I think what what maybe is that yes uh, there there are healthcare contexts like like medical assistance in dying or or like your you want to do not resuscitate order or you have a religious objection to receiving blood so so there are circumstances where we we certainly do allow people to refuse treatment and um, or withdraw treatment and and let the consequences be what they may I think what's happening here and what we see in the mental health context more more broadly is perhaps just paternalism, this, this notion that maybe these people don't actually know better. And I think sometimes it comes from a, a difficulty that, that those making policy have with putting themselves in other people's shoes. I think, you know, your average elected official can imagine what it would be like to have painful terminal cancer and want to, to, uh, to receive MAID, but they maybe aren't so able to put themselves in the shoes of someone who's using uh, addictive substances and and so there I think there's a, a paternalism and a lack of understanding that's that's often at play.
0: It almost seems to me that the the disconnect in the the conversation is there are people who work in um treatments in outreach uh, in harm reduction in in all of those different areas and i think all of them would probably make the argument that there is a absolutely a medical component there's a physiological component to and a, a psychological component to why people use in the way that they do And it almost seems like the people who are advocating for the forced treatment are looking at it purely as a moral imperative and disregarding all of the other things. And, you know, you can have your... I can have my moral feelings about a lot of different things. Um, I have moral feelings about uh, a lot of the pop music that's in the world today, but I also recognize that I don't have the ability to make people stop making crap music. I mean... We're all stuck with Nickelback. That's just the reality. Um, but it, it that seems to be the big difference is like there's this moral piece and then there's this evidence based science piece, which kind of folds back into the whole CMOH piece. Because, again, are we making decisions on the best available evidence or are we making decisions based on purely subjective feelings?
1: And and I think that's a, a problem. That's a problem that the direction that the healthcare system in this province is taking is that it's one that's moving away from science and, and experts and at times has been openly hostile to experts, um, and towards one that that is more ideological in nature, um, and and I don't think that that anybody's going to benefit from that. I don't think that the the health outcomes of Albertans in a public health emergency or Albertans who are struggling with addictions. I don't think any of that is going to be improved by a government that turns its back on science and and heads towards ideology.
0: Is there legal consequences? So let's use the 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 pandemic example. Um, and then I want to ask about where courts tend to side when it comes to evidence over feelings. But uh, is there... I've seen people who have made the argument, if there's another pandemic, God help us all, but if there is another pandemic and the government does nothing, we're going to sue them into next week. Is is that something that people can avail themselves of or is the, the government, by nature of their positions... I mean, I know that you can get away with... M- not literal murder, but you can say some pretty nasty things inside the legislature that if you were to say outside of the legislature, uh, there's consequences. Um, does that exist? Or is that just wishful thinking? Like if, if hypothetically, we do have another pandemic, and if hypothetically, the, the provincial government says, cross your fingers, everyone, um, is there legal recourse? Or is it just wait till the next election?
1: unfortunately it, it's largely wait till the next election I know a lot of people talked about wanting to sue the government for the way that it managed the pandemic and there were conversations about well is isn't this negligence weren't weren't their decisions negligent um, and the, the issue that that we have with the law of negligence is that um, what it does is it what well, does two things one it insulates policy decisions from the review of courts in negligence law. So, if the decision is a policy decision, um, as opposed to executing that policy or carrying that policy out, the courts won't touch that in a in a negligence case. Um, and so, a lot of what people had problems with during COVID would be policy decisions—the decisions not to bring in masks or not to close businesses or. You know, to not allow you to have people at your house, but to allow you to go to the mall with 10 people. You know, all of those, all of those things are, are really policy decisions. And so the courts would be very reluctant to, to say that government is negligent in that space. And then the other thing that we see courts saying in negligence cases against government is they talk about the government having a duty to the public as a whole and, and having to balance different interests, um, you know, be they economic, be they health, be they whatever, and that the courts aren't really, they're not in a good position institutionally to make those decisions for governments. They don't have access to the same information that government does. They just have the injured person sitting before them, um, and, so, and so they don't have that same institutional expertise as government. It's hard to sue governments uh, in general, and and there were cases actually after SARS where people tried to sue the Ontario government for its management of the pandemic, and those cases went nowhere for the, the the reasons that I mentioned.
0: So I guess elections have consequences.
1: They they do. Elections absolutely absolutely do have have consequences. Um, and and you know I think another legal tool that people sometimes talk about is well can't we use the Charter to make the government do something? Um, and, and the Charter doesn't tend to be interpreted that way in Canada. It tends to be interpreted more in a negative way, um, as in, did the government limit your rights? Not, you know, can we use it to make the government do things? And so your the legal recourse for mismanaging a pandemic is, is fairly limited. It really does come down to the ballot box.
0: What do you make of, cause I've heard a few people float this idea. And since I have you here, I'm just going to throw all the things at you. Sure. I, I've heard some people say, um, You know, if we have another pandemic and the government decides to be stuck on suck, well, we're going to do the recall legislation. And I mean, I've read the legislation and it requires almost a higher level of signatures than voter turnout. Uh, So I'm not sure how well that works.
1: I think it would be extremely difficult to use recall legislation to get rid of the elect particular elected officials or, or government, um, you know, even if there was a, a horribly mismanaged pandemic or, or some other similar situation. The issue is, you know, the number of signatures. Um, another issue is that it's time limited. You you can't you can only recall people a certain number of days after they've been elected or a certain number of days before an election. So there are time limits. There are uh, percentage of voter limits. I, I don't think that we can rely on that legislation as really providing much of an out. And and it's by design. The government wouldn't have put legislation in place that makes it easy to get rid of them.
0: Yeah, Um, it, it, I, I remember when the whole recall legislation came up and everybody was like, ha ha, they're putting in recall legislation and, and they were pleased because somebody said it's recall legislation. And then if you actually read it, it was like, oh, so I should be buying lottery tickets because I have better odds of that. Um, let's talk about, I mean, we're recording this on the 8th of November. Remember, remember the 8th of November, um, it's not quite how it goes, but I'm making it work. Um, we saw some, we had a big announcement today. We had, there was some foreshadowing yesterday where there was a a, a big document dump slash leak that that sort of foreshadowed what was going to be announced today. Um, describe for me what happened and then we'll get into the, what you make of it. Sure.
1: So, um Alberta had moved historically from a situation where each hospital had its own governance structures, and then those were amalgamated into health regions. And then we ended up with Alberta Health Services, which is a single health delivery organization that that deals with uh, acute care and and various other health services under their their umbrella. Um, What this legislation would do is it would shrink, well, when there is legislation, it will shrink the role of Alberta Health Services down to just an acute care provider among other acute care providers. And instead, um, we'll be bringing in four new organizations, each of which will manage uh, a different part of the, the healthcare delivery system. So there will be a primary care organization and acute care organization continuing care, and one for mental health and addiction. So we'll have these four organizations each um, tasked with with different uh, ma- managing and administration of those areas. And then the government itself uh, will seemingly be taking a, a much more hands-on issue. They talked about how AHS got too big and was doing too much budgeting, too much policy, and that those functions of policy making and budget should fall with the government so they're going to be a lot more hands-on i think in the coming years
0: i i love the the rhetoric of oh ahs is way too big said the government yeah. <laughs> yeah. like the, the the notion of you know sometimes an organization just gets too big it gets out of control so we're going to absorb all of their power onto our mass and trust us there's there's just a a dissonance in the messaging for me there um what's your immediate reaction to the the way that this has been i mean there's a bunch of implications that i want to go through with you but i want to get sort of your high level what are your big thoughts on what's been presented thus far
1: so i think my biggest concern is that this is going to take us back in time. It is no coincidence that Alberta has moved towards trying to integrate services under a single entity, AHS. That's happened across Canada. It's happened across the world. Uh, There's good reason that policymakers across the world have realized that trying to have an organization that can integrate different uh, forms of care and smoothly transition patients from one part of the system to the next is likely to have higher quality of care um, what i worry about here is just people falling through the cracks if you have one entity managing acute care another managing continuing care how are people going to make the the smooth transition between those forms of, of care um, we're moving in the opposite direction of of everyone else so so i think that's to me that the biggest concern with all of this
0: yeah i find myself curious like if you think about ahs is only going to be hospitals is is the direction that that i mean smith said it should be called alberta hospital service um and i find myself wondering historically if somebody was in 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 some form of crisis we'll do the mental health and addictions road because that would be siloed separately um but if somebody has the the mental health and addictions piece and they go to the hospital and the hospital says okay we're going to refer you to our ahs mental health and addictions um service and they do exist i mean there's i know that there's a there's a pediatric uh psychology building that's like right across from the foothills hospital that would Theoretically, and we can only speculate because we haven't seen the legislation, but based on the documents that have been produced, that would be cleaved off from AHS. And I can't help but wonder, OK, so if AHS isn't going to be running the AHS pediatric psychiatric stuffs, we're just going to who's going to take that over?
1: Yeah. And and will that person be able to transition seamlessly from acute care to Uh, mental health services in the community and and we just don't know and i think that we can theorize that it's probably not going to be as smooth as it is now because why would it be with two different organizations being run in in two different ways
0: do you have concerns and I'm curious when it comes to like the Canada Health Act, yeah. there's some there's some interesting language that was used in today's press conference because we saw the question come up. OK, so what you're saying is Alberta Hospital Services uh, would be the the new one of the providers for acute care. But you also referenced Covenant Care as an acute care provider. And you also re- referenced uh, doctor run surgical clinics as Uh, acute care so now we're talking about acute care existing and there being multiple players in it is there room for you know bob's hospital co Um, Mm -hmm. if if bob was able to present a a reasonable business case and there was no no that won't happen the response was everything's going to be publicly funded and you won't have to pay for it and that to me almost seems to to blur the lines a little bit uh, when it comes to the question of, of privatization because yeah. it seemed to me and I don't know if and this is why I'm working my way to the question I'm very long winded I apologize but it seems to me that there's almost a redefinition of what privatization means because if you're going to say well Alberta Health Services is publicly funded and so it's not private and Covenant Health is publicly funded and it's not private and the for profit Clinics are publicly funded, so they're not private. Now it seems like with this new model, we're opening up the door for more for-profit organizations coming in, and the data isn't great on for-profit healthcare, unless I'm very much, much mistaken.
1: Yeah, you're 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 correct. Um, so the if we start with the last piece, the data on on private healthcare. The the context where the data is probably the most robust is in the continuing care context, and what we've seen there is data showing that for profit uh, operators of long term care homes, nursing homes, and other continuing care facilities uh, tend to deliver poorer quality care than nonprofit public uh, facilities, and so. Alberta has a mix of different facilities, but but I think that one of the changes as a result of, of these reforms will be that those facilities that are currently publicly operated are, are likely to become private facilities. So there will be those, those concerns in the continuing care context. Um, with respect to the hospitals question, um, and you mentioned the Canada Health Act at the outset, the Canada Health Act talks about uh, the system has to be publicly administered. And so I think we're still doing that. We're still having the government and these new entities administer it. Um, and then the Canada Health Act talks about how you can't have financial barriers to insured services. And so that's why we've seen this proliferation in Alberta of these uh, private surgical facilities. It's They're privately run, But the money is coming in from the public system so that patients aren't paying, so there aren't those financial barriers. So it's not privatization in the the sense that the Canada Health Act is concerned about. It is still privatization that we should be concerned about, though. Um, There are concerns that these facilities that that aren't public hospitals will upsell patients to uninsured services, that they will... um, pull providers out of public hospitals and into these facilities, making it difficult for public hospitals to hire nurses and doctors. Um, There are concerns that these facilities take the cheap, easy cases, and then those people get seen sooner than the sicker people who have to receive, let's say, surgery in a public hospital. So yeah, these, these private facilities raise issues. And I think that under this model, we're likely to, to continue to see more of these kinds of facilities popping up and more of these contracts for private entities to provide surgical services compared to to acute care facilities.
0: It seems like in Alberta, historically, as a general theme, the, the will of the public has largely been, we don't want for-profit health care. We want public not-for-profit health care. And... It seems like one of the, the risks that exists within this new um, Alberta model, boy, the Alberta models these days, um, that exists within this new Alberta model is we're going to have not-for-profit public health care, but we're also going to have for-profit public health care. And it's not necessarily privatization in the the strictest interpretation of the Canada Health Act. So they'll get away with it. But at the end of the day, I mean, the, the math is the math and the dollars are the dollars. And so if you have a facility that can do, I don't know, 15 ankle surgeries um, from a public standpoint or a facility that's going to do 15 ankle surgeries from a for-profit standpoint something's going to be giving i mean it's the same amount of sutures it's the same amount of i don't know saw blades um and if you're going to have a profit margin then you know the efficiencies very quickly turn into not as good things am i reading that wrong
1: no no not at all so so if we look at the the long term care context where we have the most evidence um we do see corners being cut to maximize profits um specifically the corners that we we often see being cut relate to staffing so the number of staff hours per resident or the qualifications of staff that are that are working um uh, and so it is entirely possible that we'll we'll see corners cut Um, We may also see those facilities turning a profit by upselling patients to services that aren't currently insured, some of which may be beneficial, others of which may be just upselling for for very marginal benefits. Um, Another thing that we might see is, despite the fact that these facilities are taking what should be the cheap, easy cases, um, because of course, sicker people need, need to be in public hospitals um, that they'll take the cheap, easy cases, but the the what will be charged will be the same as 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 the average case um, and And we did see that before we saw there was a private orthopedic facility in Calgary several decades ago now, and we saw that it cost them more per case to do you know joint replacements than it cost in the public hospital. so yes, yeah, something has to give. Quality or cost, or pushing pushing money back onto the patients, but something something has to to give. And um, you know, in in Quebec, when they experimented with more uh, with more private surgical delivery, they found that uh, costs were being pushed back onto the public system where possible. So follow up appointments or patients who ended up needing rehab after surgeries that those got got pushed off onto the public system, and so they were being paid. To do these cases but then we're we're deferring costs whenever possible
0: one of the other things that i wanted to ask you about from a from a legal constitutional standpoint and i know it's been a hotbed issue in alberta for a while is i couldn't help but notice that the two people who got the introductions at the start of the press conference were the the guy from the firefighters association um who was presented as if he speaks for all paramedics and he it doesn't. Um, but following that, there was a, a, a gentleman from a faith based continuing care organization. And we have seen in this province issues where faith based organizations who administer, whether it's continuing care or administer health care, um, go, ah, oh, we can't do that. That's against our beliefs. And it has nothing to do with the evidence, it has nothing to do with the medicine, it has nothing to do with the science, it has to do again with that moral imperative. And, you know, when we see this expansion, and especially when we see the 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 expansion of the continuing care piece, that's gonna go fully away from AHS. Where do the courts side on that. So like here's here's the question that I'm just going to get to. Let's say that we have an expansion of the the acute care because as the press conference said, AHS is just a contractor to Alberta Health now. Um and uh a woman goes in and she's got uh, uh an ectopic pregnancy so the the pregnancy is google it if you don't know what i'm talking about audience but it's very bad and the pregnancy is non-viable um and they say oh you have an ectopic pregnancy you're going to need an abortion but we don't do that here because of faith reasons is that a scenario that could conceivably happen or is there a legal framework where the the facilities are told no, if you're going to be in this space, then you have to play by the same rules as all of the other players, because I know that there were examples where people were denied access to maid services.
1: Yeah, absolutely. There, there have been scenarios uh, where people wanted access to maid and there was a situation in Edmonton where the consultation happened outside on the sidewalk. Uh, There was another situation in BC where, um, man was was terminally ill and wanted made, and he had to be sort of schlepped across town in an ambulance and his daughter had said that it was horribly painful for him and, and difficult to to have that that transport to to a non-religious facility so yeah the, these are these are certainly issues that, that can that can happen um where the the law stands on these issues is that there is a um Individuals do have religious rights, and that's been interpreted in some contexts as giving providers the right to refuse to provide care um, where where it doesn't uh, adhere to their religious beliefs. So what has happened is some provincial colleges of physicians and surgeons, for example, have said that if you won't provide a service, you have to provide an effective referral. That's been litigated. Uh, in Ontario that's gone up to the court of appeal and the court of appeal got behind that policy um, even though there were doctors arguing that the sheer fact of a referral um, is objectionable to them Um, but the the college disagreed as did the court so so there are there is support in the law for that duty to to refer Um, some provinces have said to religious organizations too bad if you get public funding you have to provide the spectrum of, of care. That has not, to my knowledge, been been litigated. Um, there's an kind of an open constitutional question um, that's unresolved in Canada about whether those conscientious or religious objections can, like can a corporation have a conscientious or a religious objection? And and that we actually don't know. Uh, the courts have never resolved that. So, so there are a whole bunch of open issues, but it may be complicated in Alberta by the potential for legislation that made it partway through to becoming a, a bill and then and then sort of fell off the, the order paper. And that legislation would have actually explicitly protected conscientious objection, would have explicitly protected um, religious organizations and wouldn't have allowed the college to put in place a policy like Ontario's saying that you have to refer. So if that legislation reappears, um, then then we could really see that becoming a, a significant issue in Alberta for individuals seeking MAID or people seeking reproductive health care services or um, people see, uh, you know, LGBTQ couples seeking reproductive services, uh, trans affirming, uh, affirming care. Like you can imagine the scenarios that, that may cause religious objections. And so if that legislation comes back, I think there are various groups that that should be concerned with. Their access to health services
0: yeah the i i for me the 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 conscience or or conscious depending on which iteration of the the legislation and and who introduced it you want to pursue i will never get tired of that video i will never ever get tired of that video um you know the fact that we have it's it's not like the guy who introduced that private member's bill wandered off into the ether. It's more like he's currently the minister of mental health and addictions and has been handed this great big thing. But I also find myself wondering when it comes to the faith based pieces, are there any legal protections in place for, um, let's say, let's let's put a tie this all together. Um, let's say that I really like my drugs. Oh, and I'm an atheist and i overdose because the supply is garbage three times in a day and that's enough for this compassionate intervention uh to be triggered and so they say oh you've got to get treatment and we're forcing you to do that and then i get carted off to a treatment facility that is faith-based is there any sort of legal framework to say you can't do that? You can't force people into religious spaces. Is there a precedent for that? Like, is there
1: there is there isn't a, a precedent, and, and I'm not aware of, of sort of even at the policy level, patients refusing that. I mean, I, I think certainly patients can refuse religious services within those facilities so for example if a a chaplain came around or there was some form of of religious programming offered um, certainly individuals do and 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 have refused that Um, I'm not aware though of of sort of any litigation around those, those those particular issues apart from when it's it's been kind of at that um, freedom of religion uh, level and, and the alleg- or the uh, litigation has been by providers. So it's really a, an issue that hasn't been subject to much litigation. But, but I, I take your point that uh, there may be particular approaches to addictions treatment in a, a religious context that, that may differ from, from another context and that may raise these issues. Because in other contexts, the religion is more tangential, right? You're, you have cancer. And the the religion piece is is an add on. The chemotherapy has nothing to do with religion, and whether you want to avail yourself of the facilities, chaplain, or whatever else is is an opt in opt out add on. But I think you're right. In the addictions context, the treatment itself, you know, which which could be the the, the kind of therapy sessions or, or those sorts of things, could themselves be be religious based. And so um, I, I think we could see an argument there that. Um, it's impeding on on an individuals not only their their liberty the fact that they're they're there undergoing compelled treatments but that if that re- treatment has a, a religious bent to it i i could see them making an argument that uh this violates freedom of of religion freedom of, of conscience but we don't have we don't have any any cases as precedents for that but certainly those arguments could be made
0: that blows my mind that we don't have any precedents like at, at, if only for the reason that um we had this problem with these schools for a while and they were very much faith-based and they did some, you know, and I'm not denigrating faith to be clear. I I say this all the time. My audience hears this all the time. I'm not denigrating anybody who has faith, but I think when you start to use your religion as a cudgel, uh, you're crossing some lines, maybe. Um, And It's fascinating to me that we don't have any like, Hey, so taking people off to religious institutions to reeducate them, that should be illegal.
1: Well, uh, you know, if you're if if you're if you're referring to to things like, of course, you know, residential schools and those sorts of things, yeah. There has been litigation there, um, you know, but but the litigation didn't tend to be freedom of religion kind of arguments that were made, but but rather arguments for, for example, there were uh, negligence cases where it was argued that uh, the the treatment that was received was was negligent or uh, those sorts of things. Those are the arguments that have tended to be made. I'm not aware of, of charter cases like that, um, but there there may be charter cases in the in the educational context somewhere. Um, but in the health context, at least, uh, this would be something that is is still to be determined.
0: That's wild. That's just, I'm just very surprised by that. See, this is why I like having conversations with people who know things more than me and are way smarter than me because I get to learn something. It's fantastic. (laughs) Um, what are the big. So let's let's run through sort of the list of what we went through, because I want to hear what your big concerns are. What are the things that you're going to be watching for? So with the the CMOH piece with Bill Six, what are the things that you're looking at going, oh, this is going to be interesting to see how this plays out?
1: Well, I think, unfortunately, we won't really see what happens with the the uh, CMOH until there's a public health emergency. In in some ways, we don't know how the cabinet will behave until until they're actually faced with with the choice. But in the shorter term, I think I'll be curious who the CMOH will be. Um, is it going to be hard to recruit someone as CMOH, given the the political past and given the the new legislative context? And um, you know, what will what approach will that person take? Will they be a figure that that is very in the background, advising government, or will they be a figure that that has more of a public presence, um, even if there's not a public health emergency? Do they have a public presence in things like the recent daycare uh, E. coli? issue that we we saw so i think with the with the public health act unfortunately it's a long game that we're going to have to see how that plays out
0: i i guess it all depends on whether or not the given health crisis is pressing or whether or not public facing is a priority but yeah it's just me speculate i'm not even speculating that's what kills me on this um Okay. So that's the, that's the CMOH stuff. What about the, the forced treatment? What are you going to be watching for there? What are your, what are your biggest concerns? uh, Other than it's, I'm not going to put words in your mouth.
1: Well, I think in the long term, I'd love to see what happens in a charter challenge when the government is made to bring, show the evidence. Well, what evidence do they have? Um, Show that you, you exhausted other less impairing, policy options, which we know they're not. So I think in the long term, that could also be interesting. In the short term, um, you know, I wanna see what the legislation says. Um, how high does it set the bar to compel individuals to undergo treatment? Um, you know, what criteria do they have to meet to be in the category of someone who who is forced to receive treatment? What procedural protections do they get? Um, can they challenge this determination? Um, what does that look like? What does the the process look like? Um, how long are they allowed to be held under the legislation? Is it a a sort of a short temporary detox hold are or, or are they allowed to be held in facilities and treated for longer periods of time? so so, what does the law look like? is the big is the big question in that context?
0: Yeah, I have so many questions about that one because, like to me, if the concern is, oh, they're using drugs too much, they're going to overdose. If I'm that person, I'm going to be like, oh, you know what? Thank you so much for holding me for 24 hours. I'll never use drugs again. And then I would go and use my drugs. Uh,
1: yeah. I mean, I mean it's, it's sort of a catch-22, isn't it? Where, where you know, you, you obviously... Legally, the, the law would want you to hold people for as short of a, of a time as, as possible so you're not intruding on, on their liberties to a great extent. But, of course, to effectively be treated, that would, that would lean more towards a, a longer term of, of treatment. And, and that's why I think, you know, we, we want these options available to people, but we want them available so that they can choose them. And we want a broad spectrum of other options, including safe consumption, to be available for those who aren't there yet and aren't ready to, to do the recovery thing.
0: Yeah. I always go back to the old joke. How many psychiatrists does it take to change a light bulb? Only one, but it's got to want to change. Um, yeah. And yeah. I, I think there's a lot of truth in that one. What about AHS? So the, the time frame for this thing in some instances is pretty fast. And I mean, I think they said that they want to start moving on the AHS stuff like right now. And then they're hoping to have the mental health and addictions done by spring of 2024. And then they'll figure the rest out from there. What are your concerns? What are you watching?
1: Well, I think the the concern is just the siloing is going to lead to people falling between the cracks. That's a big concern. The other big concern is that this doesn't solve our actual problems. Right? If if one of our big problems is this human resource issue and attracting doctors to the province and having patients have a, a primary care provider, I don't see how any of this fixes that. If I was a doctor and I was looking at my different provincial options and where I might want to start my career, I don't know that I would want to go to the place where the system is in chaos and the government is expanding their authority and they're breaking things up and like that just sounds chaotic. If if I had various good options on the table, I'm not sure that I would would pick this unstable, chaotic uh, system in Alberta as my as my choice. So I don't think it, it solves problems. And I think we're likely to see that in the in the long-term, right? If we look five, 10, whatever years down the line, did this significantly improve patient outcomes? I don't think the answer is gonna be yes. Um, I think I'm also watching for the cost. You know, I think it was very telling that in the press conference today, the government would not cite a dollar amount for this transition. They kind of nodded to what it cost in two thousand and eight and then left it at that. Either they don't know what it's going to cost, which is a huge problem when you're embarking on such such a potentially significant thing. You need to know how much it's going to cost, or they do know the cost and and they're just not willing to share it and like either of those scenarios are problematic so i'll I'll be watching for for what this costs uh in the in the long term. Um, So so I think those are the the main things in the longer term, you know, maybe in the immediate term, just just watching who do they appoint to these new organizations? What does the legislation look like? Who has what powers? What specific accountability mechanisms there are? So basically just the details of all of this.
0: I mean, it's not like the, the provincial government has embarked on any major initiatives recently without having any concrete numbers To provide to people that's 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 clearly a standalone incident
1: yes yes something we've something we've seen before yes yeah Um, but 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 it could be it could be so expensive The, the creation of these new organizations consulting with the public all of these things and one can't help but wonder if the money wouldn't be spent better on direct patient care on frontline staff on all of these things that we we know we we need um and and I just worry that this is going to throw the whole system into into chaos when it's it's already struggling I mean just the transition of just lab services which is such a, a tiny aspect of the, the healthcare system tiny but important that was a disaster um we, we haven't seen yet the costs on that I think we we may the from the auditor general but um the, just what a disaster that was transitioning that over. And now we're going to do that with the entire system. I, I just don't see how that's going to be successful.
0: Well, and maybe the labs too. That was the, the, the other, the two little fun pieces. And, and by fun, I mean, oh, oh, oh we're doing that then, are we? we? Um, the, the fact that they've said, Hey, you know what? For, for labs, we're going to give it a year. And then we're going to see what the age, AH, the new AHS board wants to do. Um and they said the same thing for emergency medical services as well, where we're going to give it a year and, and see where the, the board wants to do. I'm curious, um, you know, the the chair of the board, he's got some a little bit of history in the medical space and in the political space. I was fascinated at how the his introduction at the press conference was just like, oh, he's a doctor and he does rural health care sometimes. And I mean, if you want to call, uh, I think it's Vietnam rural healthcare. I guess you could, but he he has a history with forms of private healthcare, and um, certainly some of his current ventures allegedly have him working for organizations that could potentially stand to benefit from this. Is there any sort of conflict of interest flags that go up for you, or is it is this one of those like well? They get to do what they want because elections have consequences.
1: It, it, it's a bit of both. It, it is, you know, they part of winning the election is it's not just that you make decisions. It's that you get to appoint people to a whole slew of Boards and tribunals and committees, and I think sometimes we we forget that that you know you you can get rid of elected officials at the next election, but you know their their influence stays around until you can you can change all of those bodies that they they made all of those appointments to, um, and, and so in some ways, yeah, you know who you get is is gets to be decided by who's in charge. I think with with respect to this this particular individual, yeah, I think it was curious that that they focused on his um his sort of medical qualifications when um you know it seems that that he maybe is more more focused on other ventures and you know he has had a, a political past uh, none of that was was really mentioned. I, I would have hoped that they would have picked someone who's currently in a a high role perhaps in AHS or or someone who is on the AHS board or someone who has been on the ahs board or someone with significant experience in healthcare governance um I, I would have liked to see an appointment that was more focused on the expertise and the necessary qualifications than perhaps someone who is politically aligned with the, the government
0: okay the 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 question that i'm 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 hedging a little bit is in february of, uh of 2021 there was an announcement from an organization called equity health services that uh, he was, he was joined or he was nominated to the strategic advisory board for equity health services. And when you go to the equity health services website and you take a look at the services that they offer um, diagnostic services, chartered surgical facilities, mobile testing, advisory and counseling, emergency infrastructure, like he's very, very recently had a, a, it appears to be pretty substantive uh interest in private healthcare, and he's going to be the chair of the board that's deciding whether or not ahs keeps lab services and, and ems like is there is is there any sort of conflict of interest rules that get triggered here or now that we fired the ethics commissioner is it just do what you want
1: um I- you know, it's been a while since I since I saw it, but I'm, I'm sure I'm sure AHS has a conflict of interest policy, although I'm not sure it would be binding on the board. I, I think they have one for, for staff and whatnot. I'm not sure, if, you know, if it would be binding on the board. But, um, you know, I think I think you're you're correct that, you know, if they've appointed someone who is friendly to uh, private options and, and for profit healthcare and chartered surgical facilities, that, that that's telling. Right, they have a whole slew of very qualified people who either work in AHS or have worked in in healthcare governance or have extensive public sector expertise. Like it's not that they had a shallow pool of talent to draw from, and the fact that they pick someone who who has politically aligned is politically aligned with them and and who has these ideological views around privatization. I mean, I think that's telling for for what values they have with respect to the healthcare system and this isn't the the first time this has happened they appointed someone to the board previously who had uh written papers and and voiced his approval of of private healthcare as well so it it seems that Um, There are those voices in AHS and that the government is going to continue to appoint them to these these kinds of leadership positions. I think we could see the same thing when they create a a board or the entity to govern this new continuing care organization. Um, You know, will we see uh, that organization dominated by voices from the for profit continuing care sector um, as well? And I think the answer is yes, we may.
0: Yeah my last question for you um there are a lot of people who are watching this legislative session uh and i i don't feel like i'm being hyperbolic when i say certainly high levels of anxiety and based on some of the messages that we've gotten abject terror um what would you what would you recommend? people do if they have concerns about the du- the direction that things are going because we're kind of screwed for the next three and a half years from an election standpoint are there there anything any recommendations that you have that people can avail themselves of if um that's something that they want to do
1: yeah so i think that um a couple of things. I think that, you know, this is a government that keeps legislation and policy decisions very close to their chest. Uh, and so that gives people limited ability to influence decisions before they happen, because we just, things just happen here. Um, and and even people who, who work in this space often don't find out until the last minute or, you know, and so it doesn't seem like there's a lot of expert consultation, they hold things very close to their chest. And so I think that it's hard to to be able to influence those big decisions, but I think once those big decisions are announced, certainly people can apply pressure to their own um to their own elected officials, to the the opposition um, elected officials, as to how the details of those things will will be sorted out. Um, I think as well, people can try and look down the line at the kinds of policies that the government is looking at and make their voices heard on those things before they become policy so for example the ucp just had their annual general meeting and voted on a whole slew of of resolutions those are things that people can try and make their voices heard on now knowing that they may become policy down the line um you know individuals can also uh, you know there's there's a lot of, of uh, experts out there commenting on various political or various policy issues, economic issues natural resources issues health issues um, you know so individuals can certainly find those voices and and use them to try and hold the government's feet to the fire um, just this week there was a paper that came out that debunked the government's uh, report on supervised consumption, and and that's getting a lot of publicity, and people are are holding the government's feet to the fire. Um, will it change their mind on that issue? Maybe not, but the more that that people do that, the more likely it is that that we'll see we'll see changes. So just calling out the government if you if you see things they're doing that don't accord with the evidence, and then of course finally the next election will come sooner than people think, and so getting involved in that. Um, early. I think, I think if people are passionate about these issues, they can certainly, certainly do that. They can um, get involved with, with, you know, their, their local uh, constituency associations, they can donate, you know, all of those, all of those things are, are helpful.
0: Perfect. Uh, Dr. Arcastle, is there anything else that you want people to hear? Um, you you brought up the, the UCP AGM. I was, I was trying so hard cause that's a whole other rabbit hole to go down. Yeah. Um, Maybe we'll bring you back for another another conversation <laughs> about all of the wonderful implications. And I just don't understand how people vote for that stuff. I just can't wrap my head around it. But is there anything else that you want people to hear? Is there anything else you want people to take away from the conversation?
1: No, I, You know, I think, I think people just need to continue to inform themselves on these issues, continue to, to try to make their voices heard by elected officials, and ultimately to, to take care of themselves. I mean, you know, if this isn't a government that's going to tell you to get vaccinated, this isn't a government that's going to tell you to wear masks if you're immunocompromised. And so ultimately, you know, you, you have to fend for, for yourself a little bit and, and find those expert voices and do what needs to be done to, to make sure that you stay healthy and safe.
0: Awesome. Dr. Lauren Hardcastle, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to to chat tonight and reinforcing how much trouble we're in.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, thank you so much. And that's it for another episode of The Breakdown. As always, if you appreciate the kind of content that we're trying to produce here, we would love nothing more than if you thought about signing up to be one of our Patreon sponsors at www.patreon.com slash TheBreakdownAB, where for just the price of a fancy cup of coffee a month, you can help us continue to produce this kind of content. Whether you're listening to the audio version of the podcast, in which case... Maybe leave a a review and a rating, or whether you're watching it on one of our streaming platforms. We want to say a big thank you to everybody who is part of the Breakdown's audience. And as always, take care of each other and keep the conversation going.